This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. Over the course of his careers as a police detective and an animal cruelty investigator, Steve Sproul has seen the worst of humanity. He is a retired detective from the Rochester, New Hampshire Police Department, where he spent 25 years. Today, he works as an animal cruelty investigator at the New Hampshire SPCA. Be advised, we discuss disturbing crimes and cases of animal cruelty in this interview. Steve, when you were a boy, did you eventually want to become a police officer? I've wanted to become a police officer ever since I watched The Lone Ranger, Hopalong Cassie, Dale Evans, and Roy Rogers. Who is your favorite police detective on TV? Gotta be Car 54, where are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he wasn't a detective, but my favorite law enforcer was Lieutenant Jim Dangle from Reno 911. Oh, yeah. Did you ever watch that rowdy show? Yeah, I have. (laughs) So you're a retired detective from the Rochester, New Hampshire Police Department, where you spent 25 years. What did you see and do over those years? My first four years when I worked for Rochester was in the patrol division. Just responded to calls, uh, motor vehicle violations. Um, at that time, we had a lot of bar room activity in the downtown area. Um, my first two years was working midnights, and we were, like, closing bars down every every night of the week. So it was, like, rowdy, but it was fun. <laughs> How often were you able to handle a case on your own with a suspect without the need for an arrest? Without the need for arrest, um, that happens a lot. A lot of times you're interviewing people and you're building up to getting the probable cause you need to make an arrest. So, you know, when I made Detective, I was on my own. I'm watching that Hulu series, The Thing About Pam, and a wrong guy gets busted for murder. Did you ever get it wrong? Not to my knowledge. Um, I've never been in a situation where somewhere down the line somebody else has come forward and made a statement saying that I know who did that, you got the wrong person. Normally when we have enough evidence to get somebody that goes to a grand jury, they listen to the evidence and then they indict the person. So I've always, knock on wood, had good luck um, with my cases. What's the worst case or the most gruesome case that you've worked the worst case that comes to my mind as a detective was a little girl um, lived in East Rochester, New Hampshire, and she was brutally beaten by both her mother's living boyfriend and the mother, hung in the attic upside down for days at a time, whipped with a belt. Finally, they brought her into the emergency room one late evening, and um, the Doctors called us because of the child abuse situation. That baby was dead. And the bruises and stuff I saw in that child's body was unfathomable. And some of the neighbors was, when the case broke loose, the neighbors were telling us, oh, I heard that baby screaming all the time. And it's like, why didn't you call? Why didn't you do something about it? And unfortunately, this young lady passed away. You have kids? I do. Are those the hardest cases? 
Yeah, there was a hard case in uh, Rochester. I got called. I was still in patrol at the time, and I got called to um, a home where the Samuel Falls River runs through the back of it. The mother had taken a nap, and she sent the three boys, three, six, and nine, out to play and sled. And the father come home at 5 o'clock and couldn't find his kids. And he called the police department. I had to respond up there. And we started looking around. We followed the sled tracks. We went right down and right into the river. So there was three drowned young boys. And called all the rescue. We recovered the three bodies. And on the way to the um, hospital doing CPR and stuff, I looked down at resemble my own son and I'm going like oh boy and that's when I uh, I almost <laughs> I almost lost it that day flipping out on the on the woman for not watching her kids better and she was eventually uh, not charged with child with child neglect um, because she wound up in the state uh, mental institute over it so the prosecutor at that time figured that was bad enough for her did some of those child cases eventually bother you so much that you just couldn't do that kind of work anymore? Yeah, your first year in detectives, when you make detective, you're um, put in juvenile division. And after about three months in juvenile division, dealing with young kids that are assaulted, molested, abused, neglected, I went to the chief and I says, you know what, I can't do this for a year either put me in full-time detectives or put me in patrol, I don't care which. And he chose to put another um, new detective in juvenile, and I wound up going to the major crime unit. What was that like? What did you see and do there? different because now you're dealing with adults, you're dealing with burglaries, you're dealing with rapes, you're dealing with murders, you're dealing with suicides, so you get to see the whole spectrum of what detectives go through each and every day. Do you have some other stories about those kinds of cases? Yeah, some of those, um, you know, really reserved um, stuff I try to forget. Sure. The abuse that I saw happening with women and the the rapes and stuff like that. And the stuff that they've gone through, it was just like, you know, it's hard to deal with. It's, it's not like patrol where you can go around every day and stop cars for speeding and running red lights and stuff like that and issuing the citation. This was down-to-earth, really good police work. And while I was in detectives, um, I got assigned to the uh, New Hampshire Attorney General's Drug Task Force. Never done drug investigation before. They sent me to all kinds of schools, supervisor school, and I wound up um, becoming a supervisor for uh, one of the drug teams, and we traveled around the state of New Hampshire doing drug undercover narcotics investigations. And I did that for four years. It's hard not to take that home with you, though, all it, of this kind of work. And and I don't, and I used to be questioned about it by my wife and my family, and it was like I just don't care to talk about this kind of stuff, and my dad and I would go off and talk about it sooner or later because he was also a, a police officer at one point. He uh, started out as a part-time police officer in um, Barrington and worked his way up to chief of police where he held that position for about 12 years. Um, so him and I knew 
pretty much that we could talk about anything and worked off of each other. I'm able to cope with it. Um, I just the type of guy that can do it today and forget about it tomorrow for some reason. It doesn't. I can't say it doesn't bother me. Once in a while, it'll come up. Geez, I remember this. You know, I see a TV show and oh, I remember when I was involved in a case like that. But other than that, I just move on and take the next case. Adult recreational use of cannabis is now legal in every state that borders New Hampshire, but here in New Hampshire, possession is simply decriminalized, which is a fine. Where do you stand on the issue of recreational cannabis? It shouldn't be allowed. Take firearms, for instance. You're not supposed to have them unless you're uh, an 18-year-old adult. you got kids walking around the streets with it. So you look at the drug issues and they legalize it and let people do it. And you know there's going to be people out there selling it, still selling it illegally. And I, I just think it's just going to give the people the excuse that, um, well, it's legalized, so I can I can have it. And they're not going to tell you where they bought it because a lot of times they're just going to buy it off the street. That's not going to stop. Police reform's been a hot topic for a while. <laughs> And a couple of years ago, New Hampshire's nonpartisan think tank, the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy, outlined eight proposals for reform. Among those, making police discipline files public, outlawing chokeholds or neck compression, regardless of the circumstance, mandating body cameras and verbal warnings requiring officers to intervene, stop, and report misconduct, improving screening and treatment for PTSD, pursuing more and better de-escalation training, adopting better use-of-force policies that require force to be reasonable, necessary, and proportionate, and ending officer immunity from civil lawsuits. Do you support any of those ideas? For the most part, I do. I don't think any officer should be using excessive force. I believe they should be using the force necessary to make the arrest. Sometimes it is up to the individual that you're arresting as to how much force you need um, to use. You've got to make that arrest. But I also think that um, any time a police officer is judged and like take the lorry list, for instance, that they have going around the state now. I've, I think that was the most foolish thing that um, police departments could ever do is, and I don't know who came up with that lorry list, but if you're bad as a police officer that you wind up on the lorry list for lying, you shouldn't be on the list. You should be terminated. There's no such thing as being able to lie. You've got to go into court on a DWI and and. Everybody in there, the, the lawyers, defense lawyers, all know that you've already lied. The judge knows that you've already lied under oath. What good are you as a police officer at that point? You, you ruin the credibility of every other police officer around the country by lying, and you should not be a cop. You should be terminated immediately and not be put on some stupid list. Were there some of the other proposals that you have an issue with? I think body cameras are a necessity in this day and age to protect the officer 
not to get the officer in trouble for doing his job. I don't think an officer that's doing his job should wind up in trouble. And that body camera is going to protect that officer and show exactly, especially in deadly force situations, that the officer was justified. You don't have body cameras, and it's your word against two witnesses that might have seen it differently. I've been to cases where we've taken statements from three people that watched the same incident take place, and each one of them has a different story how they saw it, how they judged it. So body cameras in this day and age is a protection for the officers, and I think they all should be mandatory to wear body cameras. Any other thoughts on those other proposals? If you see a um, an officer um, that's doing misconduct, using excessive force, that should be brought to the attention of a supervisor, and that should be looked at thoroughly because that police officer is given everybody else on that department a bad rap because they see one officer doing this or that. They're going to think all officers are capable of doing that. So you need to bring that to the light of the um, authorities that are higher up and let them make a determination as to what happens to that officer up to and including termination. What are some misconceptions that people have about police and policing? That we're all donut lovers. <laughs> you don't like donuts? <laughs> um, we live in Dunkin' Donuts land. Yeah. You know, that used to get me all the time. You know, you'd be um, showing a new new rookie around the town and stuff like that. And it would be like, hey, can we pull in Dunkin' Donuts? I need a coffee. Well, I'm, I'm not a coffee drinker. So I'd be like, yeah, I can pull in so you can get a coffee or something like that. And that's fine. You know, they need they need a coffee or they need a donut but i mean it's like every time you stop somebody now it's like what are you gonna go get a coffee and donut type thing it's just an old right um the other thing is when they call you a pig all the time you know when that first started out it didn't bother us we just says yeah that means pride integrity and guts there you go turn it on them turn it on them you know that's what you that's what you need to do but what else what do we not realize about the job what do you not realize about it? Some officers take it home with them. Um, they start going out to clubs after work and trying to drink the their troubles away, so to speak, and they wind up alcoholics. Um, some officers have wound up committing suicide. They say that the nationally the highest level of uh, suicide is by police officers. So there's a lot of people that can't cope with it, and they should seek help the first time or if you happen to be an officer that sees one of your fellow officers is unable to cope with it that um, you should report that so that they could seek some type of uh, treatment for that officer did you ever fire your gun in the line of duty fired it every three months for training but other than that i haven't had to fire my service weapon what did you carry well, different levels, um, mostly nine millimeters that were issued to us. New Hampshire has been a constitutional carry state for several years. What's your opinion on that law, and do you feel safer, less safe? Obviously, you get a lot more calls from um, concerned citizens that, oh, this guy's walking in the mall with a gun, so you're getting a lot more calls from the police department responding to a lot more calls, man with a gun. We've seen guys riding motorcycles with a gun on their hip and stuff like that. 
and it's it's this it's a constitutional right to bear arms. Um, we treat cases um, when you pull a car over. One of the first things you'll see now is, are you armed? Do you carry a firearm with you? They want to know right up front. And you're supposed to tell them when you get pulled over, officer, I have a concealed carry permit and I do have a firearm on me. A lot of states now require that as a law that if you're carrying a firearm, the first thing you got to do is to tell them, otherwise you can be arrested even though you have a permit to carry a firearm. A lot of states require that. I don't think New Hampshire does at this point, but they should at some point require that. But, you know, being around, especially like in the, in a town, you know who the troublemakers are, and all of a sudden, um, if you see a felon with a gun, you definitely want to be concerned about it because it's a felony to carry a gun if you're a convicted felon. So you always, in this day and age, you always approach people a little different than you would have back before. And there was still people that were carrying by permits that you ran into all the time. It just wasn't as public as it is now because now you don't even need a license to carry a concealed gun. And everybody is doing it. A lot of people are wearing them right out without a, without concealment. They just want to show everyone that they're wearing a sidearm. In your law enforcement role, what did you learn about humanity? Did humanity in law enforcement? <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn about people? You saw a lot of bad out there. Yeah. It doesn't certainly reflect I, the majority of the population, I don't believe. But it, you saw the worst of the worst. I have seen the worst of the worst. And, and over the years, even after I retired, you see names in the paper where the children are now getting arrested for crimes the same as their father did. They're following in their father's footsteps or their mother's footsteps, whatever the case may be. You know, my father was a drunk, beat on my beat on his uh, wife and stuff like that. I saw him beating on my mother, so now I'm married. I can drink and I can beat on my wife. It's, you see that. You go, and I read, the, I read the paper all the time, and I'm going, I'll tell my wife, I says, well, I was dealing with his father back when I was on the department. Now the kids turn out to be the same way. Sad. Like father like son, I guess. I don't know. I mean, you try to raise kids to do right. They get to a certain age, and they do what they want. Nothing you can do about it. My own son didn't like me being a cop. He was being picked on at school because of it, because your daddy's a pig and all this stuff. And he... He fought back and went went the went the bad route. And instead of um, you know, I was always hoping that he would follow in my footsteps. I followed in my father's. My brother also a retired cop, and I'm a retired cop. And I was hoping at some point he would fall into that same category, but he just chose to be totally different. That's how you got in a few scrapes that he's been involved with and it breaks my heart to see that but i haven't had control over him since he was three years old because i i'm from a divorce my wife didn't like me being a cop it's tough it is it it can consume your life yeah and it's uh, not an eight to five job it, at a it's computer. not it's not an eight to five job sometimes you are working double shift just to make the mortgage because everybody knows cops are one of the lowest paid uh, people in in this in the state, you know, they don't make a lot of money, but they 
are expected to live above the law and be able to pay their bills. And sometimes even cops get in trouble. I, I know cops that were drawing food stamps. It shouldn't um, be happening in this country. It definitely shouldn't. Um, we should value Absolutely. Public service employees more should, than we do. We should value them. We should be valuing uh, our military people that went to war and fought first and got injured, and then they come home and they're living on the streets because the government won't take care of them. Who nowadays would even want to enlist in the military because they know when they come home, if they're wounded, government ain't going to take care of them. Yeah. Let's switch gears. You've been working as a humane agent for the past 20 years at the New Hampshire SPCA. What has your role in animal protection taught you about people or taught you about animals? People don't care about animals. I don't say all people. Um, I would say there's a good number of people that love and treat their animals just like they have family. Other people, they don't care. They just get animals because a kid wants a dog or a cat. Next thing you know, the kid's not paying any attention to the dog. The dog gets tied out to a tree and lives his life tied out to a tree in the yard. I've always tried to, f- tried to figure out why people want to do that to an animal, and nobody yet has been able to answer that for me, is why are you abusing and neglecting your animal? You get the animal. If you don't want the animal, you can walk in here any day of the week that we're open and turn your animal in. You can call us and say, hey, I want to surrender my horse because I can't afford to take care of it anymore. And you don't see that happening until you're there knocking on the door with the police because you've got to report that the animal is starving. I imagine some people have the very best of intentions. At heart, they're compassionate animal lovers, and maybe they think they can save the world. And for one reason or another, it sometimes gets out of hand. I'm being charitable here, but do some people truly believe that animals can fend for themselves outdoors more than they're actually able to do so? I know some people believe that if you get a sick dog, you let it outdoors and it'll go off somewhere and die. That's not the case in in the state of New Hampshire. If that dog is medically sick you're required by law to supply that dog with veterinary service whether it be a dog or cat or whatever animal it is if that animal is sick or injured you're required to supply medical treatment for that animal and they don't i don't have the money well the law doesn't say if you have if you don't have the money you don't need to if you don't have the money there's resources out there that you can turn to to help with that animal Mental illness must be a huge component, too. Yeah, the, yeah. there's a lot of um, people coming out now and saying animal hoarding is a, is a mental disorder. Do you think it is? I think, it has, I think it has a lot to do with it. It's hard. It, you have to take each and every case uh, individually because some people that just will tell you right up front, I've got 20 dogs, I have a right to have 20 dogs, and... and and there's nothing you can do about it, you know, and, and they're my animals and I can treat them as I want. This is a live free or die state. And that's the worst model that the state of New Hampshire could ever have. <laughs> because even your lawmakers in Concord, when they're looking at the laws, are saying the same thing. This is a live free or die state. And there's too many people that think that motto is 
gives them the power to do whatever they want and not obey the laws. A few years ago here in New Hampshire, a woman was convicted of 17 counts of animal cruelty after 84 dogs were seized from her mansion. I know that wasn't in this part of the state where you're working. She said she was intent on becoming the primary U.S. collector of European Great Danes. Were you involved in any way in that case? The uh, I know what you're talking about, and I was involved a v- um, just a little bit. I had to uh, go up and do some ammonia readings in the house. The chief had called me to do some. Uh, I have. I think I'm the only one in the state that has an ammonia tester, and we had to go and rate the uh, ammonia levels in the house. That was a horrific incident. Just the same as the 34 German shepherds that we wound up taking out of Alexandria that were living in a barn, which was a year after this incident happened that you're speaking about in Wolfboro. One of your first investigations was a dogfighting ring in Newton, and you helped rescue 50 pit bulls. To this day, the largest dogfighting case ever to be brought to justice in New England. Tell me about that case. Well, that was interesting because I got hired, and the director just handed me a whole stack of files from the past investigator, and to, told me to go through and, and get a feel for what he was doing and how he was doing the, the job and stuff like that, read over these cases. And I come across a real thick file that um, was all about a case in Newton, New Hampshire, where this guy was raising these pit bulls. And the, the whole neighborhood was up in arms about the barking and... Um, the dogs getting loose and running around the neighborhood. The police had been there on I don't know how many occasions, issued them citation for barking dogs, and nobody could put their finger on the number of dogs that he had. Reading through the all the reports and stuff, it's like something's wrong here. Somebody's not doing what they should be doing. And I came across a witness statement, and I called the witness up, and I says, you gave a statement not too long ago about this guy uh, using these dogs to fight. He goes, oh, yeah. I said, would you be willing to come in and sit down with the police and talk to them and give them a written statement on this? And he was more than willing to. So he came in, gave the uh, police department a good statement, which led them to get a search warrant. And we went over to the place, and we did wind up taking 50 fighting dogs out of that place. Those dogs must have been in rough shape. There was some of them that were torn, um, still injured from fights, and he was, of course, you don't bring a vet in to treat these animals. You treat them yourself, all the injuries. This one dog that um, was completely scarred up in the face, his legs, his whole back and everything was all scarred up. He had two broken legs instead of walking normal like a normal dog. He looked like a real bow-legged animal, and um, he was getting around all right, but you could tell that they were just injuries, broken legs that just healed on their own, not being taken care of by a veterinarian. There were puppies that were just born two days before we got there with a search warrant. We wound up taking some puppies, and um, we we got enough evidence from inside the Quonset hut 
that um, he he had drugs in there to treat the dogs with and stuff like that. He had a fighting ring in there. It was all bloody carpet and stuff on the fighting ring. He had weights and scales to measure the weight, the weight of the dogs before they fought. He was a professional. He had a professional set up there. Wound up uh, taking the dogs, and he got arrested. $300,000 in cash was seized out of the house. The guy wasn't working. His wife was a school teacher, and we know $300,000 didn't come from her. During the investigation, found out that there was also drugs involved in the house. And then the DEA was called in and took over that part of the case with the, with the drugs and stuff. And we wound up um, taking them for animal cruelty. And um, after testifying, the judge ordered him five years in New Hampshire State Prison. You also helped remove over 70 cats from a home. What oh happened there? <laughs> we get called to a home, a um, supposedly a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And the wife rushed him to the hospital, rushed her husband to the hospital. And the hospital reported the gunshot wound to the police department. So they went to talk to the wife, brought her back to the house. And they immediately called me. And said we're going to have to remove all these animals. This house is a total, total mess, full of cat manure, full of cat urine, and full of cats. And so he said, "Well, how many cats are we talking about?" And he said, "Well, the owner says twenty-five. The first day that we were there, we wound up taking over seventy cats out of the house. The second day, um, the animal control officer brought us some more. We wound up taking." I believe it was 84 cats out of the house total. Wow. Out of one single ranch house that they didn't even own. And the house was totally destroyed. The cats had clawed the walls. The urine and feces was all over the floors. Um, you couldn't even open the front door because they used that front hallway area for um, the, the litter pan. And, I mean, that whole house was just a mess. And the owner of the house came in. And um, he was appalled at the conditions and stuff of the house, and he went right down and started the eviction process on the people so he could get in, and I don't know what he's going to do with the house, but, I mean, you get to tear up floors and everything else to get that ammonia smell out of a house. And the ammonia levels in that house were so high that the, uh, the health officer had to condemn the house. It's hard to imagine yeah. someone being able to live in that. Oh my God! The, person or animal. Just walking in there to do the ammonia test, it was like re- I had a mask on. It was knocking, knocking me over. Uh, my eyes were starting to run, and so I knew it was going to be a high ammonia level reading. And um, like I say, I don't know how they survived and lived in that house. It wasn't a place in there you could walk without stepping in cat feces. You said one of your most rewarding stories of all time was Sam the Golden Ghost. So he was missing for a couple of years. He became a national news story. He was a national news story. Great dog. Uh, I run field services division, manage the uh, rescues and disasters response team. Um, And this gentleman called me one day out of the blue and says, I need help getting my dog back. I just rescued him out of... Uh, I believe it was Tennessee, and he went down and brought this beautiful golden retriever back, and he was walking it one day, and something happened, and he fell, tripped and fell, and he let go of the extended leash, and the dog just took off. So he asked if there was a way that I could help him, so 
wanted to go out and set up traps and see if we could capture the dog. We couldn't capture him. He wouldn't go anywhere near traps. So I'm a certified um, chemical capture person, and I says, I'll just take a dart gun out and walk them, go hunting them in the woods, and if I see him, I'll just put a dot in his butt and hopefully capture him using chemicals. And couldn't even get anywhere near the dog um, to do that. There was a couple of times during these two-year event that I could get close to the dog and you'd put a dot in his butt and he would just run off and the adrenaline that that dog had would just, it, the drug wouldn't even affect him. He would just be gone. You wouldn't <laughs> see him for two or three days. And that dog knew he was wandering around, and he knew two different towns, both Raymond and Fremont. And he knew when the trash was put out in Raymond, and he knew when the trash was put out in Fremont. No way. And he would walk the roads at night, tipping over garbage cans and stuff to eat. So if Fremont's rubbish day, you knew that the dog was going to be out walking around. I'd, I'd be out 1, 2 o'clock in the morning looking for the dog. We saw him a couple times, but it's like, what are we going to do with this dog at I don't want to die at at 1 o'clock in the morning because he's going to run off in the woods and I'm not going to find him. So um, we had police contacting us all the time. I just saw the dog down here behind the store um, looking for food and stuff like that. And my wife is a uh, volunteer here, so she would jump in the truck with me and we'd go flying off to see if we could corner the dog and capture it. So that went on for two years. Um, finally, this gentleman um, that was helping trying to capture the dog, he donated $4,500 to the New Hampshire SPCA, and we purchased what what is called a drop net system. It's a big net that's set up. It's 30 by 30. It's a big net that's set up. And we put the food right in the middle of the net on, on the ground. This net is like six feet off the ground. And we had cameras monitoring it tv cameras and and all i had to do was stand back and push a button and it would drop the net so um one of the animal control officers named tona mccarthy from raymond he uh, happened to be driving by and he stopped at the house one day where we had this drop net set up he looked in the garage and he saw the dog under the net eating the food and he pushed the button and we got the dog nice there was stories about that dog all over Good Morning America came here and interviewed us with me and the, the owner and the dog. The dog was sitting in between my legs instead of the owner's. Oh, that's sweet. What kind of shape was he in when you got him? You'd have never known that dog had been on the run for two years. Everyone's saying like, oh, you get that dog, you're going to have to euthanize it. It's gone to wild and all this stuff. That dog was no more wild than um, any other golden retriever. The minute we got the dog... Um, I could pat the dog. I handled the dog. My wife and I, the next day, gave it a bath that was loaded with ticks. And we gave it a uh, tick bath and stuff like that. And he was just a super nice dog. So after the owners got the dog back, we took it to the vet and we found out that it had heartworm. So they treated it for the heartworm. The dog survived that. And um, they took it to a obedience school so that the dog could learn to come back to him because they only had the dog like a week for the dog got away from him oh a puppy yeah i don't more or less it, it was probably Young. a year old at the time which you call it a puppy but they hadn't bonded with that dog right and it wouldn't even come to them 
so two years on the run, uh, we had a lot of people spotting the dog. We had a team called the Sam Seekers that were going around <laughs> setting up food dishes and stuff for them. And then once we got them into an area that he kept coming back to, we asked them not to feed them so that we could set up one food station, put the net over it, and capture them. And that's what exactly what happened. But it took two years. We got a commendation from the uh, selectmen from the uh, town of Raymond for all the hard work we did on that dog case. It's really nice to have a happy ending, isn't it? Yeah. Unfortunately, Sam passed away last year. Um, Do you know how old he was? I don't. But um, he was he was a great dog. We have a pause walk here every year in the summer. And um, every year she'd bring the dog to pause walk and raise money for the SPCA. <laughs> That's a nice story. Yeah, he was our ambassador to the Paws Walk the first year that we got him back. He he was the ambassador for Paws Walk. You also helped dismantle an illegal wolf rescue operation. Over three dozen wolf hybrids. Some of them were real wolves. Some of them were hybrids. Guy ran an illegal uh, wolf sanctuary here in New Hampshire. He was in one town. The town kicked him out of there. And he disappeared one day. And I got a call from the Alexandria Police Department that they were working with another group from Upper Valley Humane Society, and they wanted us to go up and dot these wolves. The guy had moved these dogs up onto a mountain in Alexandria, unbeknownst to the owners of the mountain, and had kept them there probably for the, for the year that they were missing. We didn't have a clue where this guy went. And um, he had set up all kinds of uh, big, uh, probably one-acre areas for all these wolves, different pens. And he had different wolves in different pens. We literally had to go into the pens and face these wolves and and dot them so that um, they could be moved to a sanctuary up here in New Hampshire. What kinds of wild animals have you found in homes or other situations? I'm not responded to a lot of wild animal calls because the fishing game likes to handle all the wild animal calls. I have picked up a a white snow owl on the side of the road that was injured by a car, and I took that over to the York Sanctuary over there, and um, they never were able to release that owl, white snow owl, but now I don't know if they still have it. The last time I saw them, they still had it, and we're taking it around to schools and stuff like that. But 90% of the time, the, we have wildlife rehabilitators in this state, and the fishing game wants them to go to them rather than transfer them out of state. So they handle all the wildlife calls now. Did you watch Tiger King on Netflix? Nope. Those people live in my home state of Oklahoma. Oh, wow. We actually had a tiger here once at the New Hampshire SPCA that was brought in here, a live tiger, lion actually, and it stayed here for a while. This was back long before my time. One of the uh, directors is trying to find out whatever happened to it because the last we knew it was taken to a sanctuary down in Pennsylvania. The director that was taking it to a sanctuary in Pennsylvania didn't like the sanctuary that it was going to, she turned around and brought it back. So I know that the lion was defanged and he had declaws, so you couldn't 
release it back out into the wild, you know, like ship it back over to Africa or nothing because it wouldn't have survived. So we don't know to this day whatever happened. There's no record of whatever happened when she brought it back from the uh, sanctuary. So if anybody out there knows or heard that story, we'd love to hear it. We actually have pictures of that of that uh, lion here at the SPCA. So how did COVID change your role or your organization's role? I know my uh, cruelty uh, calls declined quite a bit over the COVID period because people were staying at home. Now, I don't know if it's because they were staying at home and taking care of their pet or if they were staying home and not seeing the actual cruelty that was taking place somewhere else. So my calls dropped down. I usually get between 50 and 60 calls a month, and my calls dropped off to like 20, 25 a month during the COVID. We were closed during COVID, but we still had teams coming in to take care of the animals. I was still here eight hours a day, five days a week, doing my animal cruelty and stuff like that. Um, But for the most part, we we had closed the doors, and which worked out good because we were under construction anyway. It seemed like it was a lot harder to find a rescue animal because I tried to do that myself, and really all that was left were dogs that really weren't appropriate for my kind of home life. The whole thing with COVID, it stopped people from importing dogs into the state and everything. It just Everything just dwindled right down because nobody was going anywhere, traveling anywhere, and now the this starting to um, increase. You got a lot of you know, people that call themselves the dog rescue that are not licensed by the state that are going, making trips to the south, picking up dogs, bringing them back, and selling them. You know, trying to make a living like that, which is uh, illegal in this state to do. You're not even supposed to bring a dog across the state lines unless that dog is accompanied by a health certificate from the other state that it came from. Once it's in the state, it's supposed to be quarantined for 48 hours. People aren't doing that, and it's hard to find these people because they're doing it under the cover of darkness. You have trucks that come into the malls and sell dogs off the uh, out of the back of the malls, and we don't hear about it until the truck's already gone. And then you're getting people that are calling up saying, oh, I bought this dog, and it's got parvo. What can I do? Well, where'd you get the dog from? Uh, I got it off the truck from North Carolina. Well, <laughs> nothing we can do about that. You know, it's it's unfortunate. But if you if you're taking the chance of buying these out of state dogs, and they're not having health certificate, that's on you. One of the biggest things I tell people: if you have to meet somebody in the parking lot, they're breeding dogs, but they won't let you go to the house, and they want to meet you in the parking lot to sell you that dog. That's a warning sign. There's something wrong at that house, and you shouldn't be going and even considering adopting or purchasing a dog from a breeder that's like that. If they can't invite you into your house and let you see where the dogs are living and in what condition the dogs are in, stay away from them. What are you working on nowadays? Just did a horse case yesterday. Um, brought in five five horses on a uh, on a cruelty case. What was involved in that case? I was called in by the police department. The report was that this woman had horses in her barn all over winter, and the horses never got out. Um, You're supposed to let horses out for daily exercise, and she wasn't doing that. And unfortunately, it came to us at the end of the winter, and so these horses have been living in their own filth and living, laying in manure and urine in their stalls locked in a barn for the whole winter. 
during the investigation, the uh, a veterinarian was called in in order to removal of the animals, and that's what we did yesterday. We went out and took took five horses out. My last question: What do you guys need from the public? Always looking for donations, blankets, sheets. We have a lot of people that'll go that can go uh, to like Chewy dot com and order stuff and have it shipped to the New Hampshire SPCA. We like cat food, dog food, even if they don't want to do that, just send in funds. Uh, we have an SOS account. We have um, a big pause walk coming up. They can show up at pause walk or they can donate to the pause walk. And it's all for the animals. All that money goes to helping care for all these animals. It's like these horses, by the time they reach court and stuff, could wind up in the thousands of dollars. It's expensive to feed five horses and do medical treatment on them and hoof care and dental care on them and that ranges into thousands of dollars and court cases drag out six months eight months so it's always good that we can use uh, good old greenbacks anything else you want to add steve no i just want you know if you see something uh, um, don't just you know keep it in the back of your mind feel free to call us um you can go to the uh, New Hampshire SPCA.org website. There's a place on there you can actually uh, click on and report a cruelty case. It comes directly, email comes directly to my desk um, and, and report what you're seeing bad. Um, the other thing, with summer coming, there's going to be a lot of dogs in hot cars. Um, is it especially critical that if you see that, to call your local police department immediately? It doesn't do any good to call the next day and say, hey, when I was at the mall yesterday, I saw this dog locked in a hot car and the windows were all up. You want to call immediately when you see that to whatever police department so that they can respond to it. Because it doesn't take long for that dog to, to perish in the car when that temperature is up above 70, 80 degrees outside. That temperature in that car is over 100 inside the car. So every year we just tell people. Leave your dogs at home. Even if you go into the store for a short amount of time, leave the dog at home because if you get in the store and you get gabbing with somebody and you forget something, 20 minutes from now you go back out and that dog could be dead. Law enforcement can do whatever they need to do up to and including breaking a window to get the dog out. Um, I've seen cases where it's unfortunately taking police 20 minutes to a half hour to get there and the dog is passed. Um, they just tried to pass legislation last year that gives citizens the right to break into the car and rescue the dog, and that fell through. Legislature wouldn't pass that law to protect the people. The police are protected from any civil suits for the damage that's done to the car. So they should be the one that you immediately call and see what they can do to get the dog out of the hot car. Thanks so much, Steve. Oh, you're very welcome. The New Hampshire SPCA receives no federal or state funding. It relies entirely on community support. To help animals in need, visit nhspca.org. Follow Diary of a Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review my work at Apple Podcasts. Mm -hmm.